Elizabeth Flattery, and welcome to SOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, I'm joined by my heritage colleague, Jason Snead. Jason, welcome back to SCOTUS 101. It is great, as always, to be here. Before we get into what's been going on at the court, I wanted to mention that we are still selling SCOTUS 101 mugs, so show your love for the podcast and get a limited edition mug while they last. You can get them at shop.heritage.org, and listeners, we're offering a 30% off discount code and free shipping. You'll want to enter four bananas, that's all one word, the number four, and bananas, all lowercase. Enter that at uh, checkout to get your discount. All right, now on to the show. The court issued three opinions this week, uh, so there are now 24 outstanding cases with just two weeks left to go in the term. And we're still waiting for decisions in the higher-profile cases of the term, such as the census citizenship question case. Now, late Wednesday, challengers in that case asked the court not to rule and instead to send it back to the lower court for further fact-finding in light of new allegations that uh, adding this question was intended to give Republicans political advantages. Meanwhile, the Census Bureau plans to run a test by sending a form similar to the 2020 census to 480,000 households this week, half with the citizenship question, half without. And this is to gauge how adding the question may affect the response rate. So with that, let's move on to the three opinions that the court issued this week. Jason, you want to talk about the first one? Sure. So first up, we've got uh, Quarles v. United States, which was a unanimous opinion by Justice Kavanaugh. And it deals with the Armed Career Criminal Act, which uh, the court seems to, to have a handful of cases each term that deals with that particular act. This case uh, looked at whether the defendant's state law conviction for third-degree home invasion qualified as burglary under the ACCA and was a predicate offense for his conviction for being a felon in possession of a firearm, which uh, is in violation of another part of that same act. The defendant, Quarles, argued that his state conviction did not qualify as a burglary because the statute was too broad and covered situations where a defendant forms the intent to commit a crime at any time while unlawfully remaining in a dwelling. In reviewing his claim, the Supreme Court held that remaining in burglary offenses occur when the defendant forms the intent to commit a crime at any time while unlawfully in a building or structure. The court had previously interpreted the term burglary in this act to mean burglary in, quote, the generic sense in which the term is now used in the criminal codes of most states. Remaining in is a continuous event, meaning that a burglary occurs if the defendant forms the intent to commit a crime at any time during the continuous event of unlawfully remaining in a building or structure. Quarles' interpretation would, quote, thwart the stated goals of the Armed Career Criminal Act, end quote, as many state burglary statutes would be eliminated as predicate offenses. Thomas wrote a concurring opinion criticizing the categorical approach to the enumerated offenses clause, noting that it is difficult to apply and can yield different sentences. So the court just heard argument in this case, I believe, towards the end of April. So it was a pretty quick turnaround by our our newest justice, Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, But moving on to uh, the second opinion of this week, Return Mail Inc. versus U.S. Postal Service. This is a 6-3 decision by Justice Sotomayor. She was joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. Yes, that's right. It was Justice Sotomayor and the five conservatives. Uh, The court held that the government is not a person for purposes of challenging the validity of a patent under the America Invents Act. So Return Mail, Inc., 
claimed that the U.S. Postal Service's address change service infringed its patent for a method to process undeliverable mail. Return Mail uh, sued the USPS for compensation from the unauthorized use of its invention. The Postal Service sought what's called covered business method review created by the America Invents Act, which allows a person to seek review as a defense against an infringement suit. The Patent Trial and Appeal Board canceled the patent as a result, and the Federal Circuit affirmed, holding that the government is a person eligible to seek this type of review. The Supreme Court reversed, noting that the patent statutes do not define person. The court followed a longstanding interpretive presumption that person does not include the sovereign and therefore excludes a federal agency like the Postal Service. This presumption reflects both common usage and an express directive from Congress, the Dictionary Act. So the presumption controls absent, quote, an affirmative showing of statutory intent to the contrary. Uh, the Dictionary Act defines person as natural individuals, as businesses such as corporations and partnerships, but not governments unless the context indicates otherwise. The majority also pointed out that excluding federal agencies from review proceedings as a person uh, avoids the awkward situation where you would be forcing a patent owner to defend its patent, quote, in an adversarial adjudicatory proceeding initiated by one federal agency and overseen by another federal agency. Justice Breyer dissented, joined by Justices Ginsburg and Kagan, emphasizing that the interpretive presumption on which the majority relied is not a hard and fast rule. In his view, factors uh, such as the subject matter, legislative history, overall purpose, and executive interpretation of patent statutes indicate Congress's intent to include the government as a person when it passed uh, the America Invents Act. So I think it's interesting, uh, one note about the justices' lineup here. This is only the sixth time in Justice Sotomayor's 10 terms on the Supreme Court where she has joined uh, the, the a block of five other conservatives. So I thought that was kind of an interesting note. They're only the sixth time in, in you know, 10, 10 terms. Wow. Well, I think uh, our listeners should keep that in, in mind for potential future Supreme Court trivia questions. <laughs> So up next, uh, we're going offshore with Parker Drilling Management Services v. Newton, which was a unanimous opinion written by Justice Thomas uh, that reversed and vacated the Ninth Circuit and held that when federal law addresses the relevant issue, state law is not adopted as surrogate federal law applicable on the outer continental shelf. So Newton worked on oil platforms off the coast of California run by the company Parker Drilling. He was paid for his time while he was on duty, but not for the time while he was on standby, during which he was not permitted to leave the drilling platform. He filed a class action in state court claiming that Parker Drilling had to pay him for his standby time under California's wage and hour laws. The case ended up in federal district court, where Parker Drilling argued that California law was preempted by the Federal Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act. This act provides that all law on the Outer Continental Shelf is federal and state laws apply only to the extent they are applicable and not inconsistent with other federal law. The district court dismissed the state law claim because the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1939, a comprehensive federal wage and hour law, left no significant gap in federal law for state law to fill. The Ninth Circuit reversed, claiming that California's law applied and was not inconsistent with federal law. But the Supreme Court reversed and vacated that decision. Federal law is the only law applicable on the Outer Continental Shelf. 
that it is not a mere extension of the adjacent state where state law applies unless it conflicts with federal law. That type of preemption analysis only applies where there is overlapping dual state and federal jurisdiction that makes it necessary to decide which law takes precedent. There is no overlapping state and federal jurisdiction on the Outer Continental Shelf, and so only federal law applies. So I saw a a post on SCOTUS blog um, written by Seattle University law professor Andrew Siegel, and he points out that as a practical matter, this decision won't change very much because 90% of uh, cases under the Outer Continental Shelf Act, Lands Act fall under the Fifth Circuit's jurisdiction um, because it covers the Gulf of Mexico, and that that court already applied a similar rule. Uh, it seems that the justices are certainly um, making us have our vegetables <laughs> before we get our dessert <laughs> with, with the, the opinions that came out this week. Um, but moving on to the grants, the court added five more cases that will be heard next term. I'll quickly run through these. Uh, first up is Atlantic Richfield Company versus Christian. This case stems from a dispute between landowners in Montana and Atlantic Richfield over recovering pollution cleanup costs and whether federal law preempts these claims. Uh, the reigning queen of SCOTUS advocacy, Lisa Blatt, who recently joined Williams and Connolly to head up their Supreme Court practice, uh, will uh, will face off against Joe Palmore from Morrison and Foster, also known as MOFO in this case. Uh, then there's McKinney versus Arizona. The issue is when a court is resentencing or c- correcting a capital defendant's sentence, uh, is it supposed to apply current law or the law in effect when the conviction became final? Uh, the third new case is Intel Corp Investment Policy Committee versus uh, Salima. This is an ERISA case brought by a former engineer at Intel claiming the company's retirement plan administrators violated their fiduciary duty. So there's a three-year statute of limitation for claims under ERISA uh, that runs from when uh, the plaintiff had actual knowledge of the breach or violation. Intel says the plan sent emails to employees more than three years prior, but the lower court said that doesn't prove the plaintiff actually read the emails or had actual knowledge of the breach or violation necessary to start the limitation period. The fourth case is Manaski versus Taglieri. This is a case dealing with the Hague Convention on Child Abduction. So here we have a U.S. citizen mother uh, who left Italy with her eight-week-old baby, and the Italian dad sued in U.S. federal district court to have the baby returned to Italy. The Hague Convention says that custody issues must be resolved in the baby's country of habitual residence, and the U.S. courts ruled against the mother. So the two issues before the Supreme Court, the first one is, when a baby is too young to acclimate to her surroundings, do the parents have to reach an agreement about what constitutes the habitual residence? And also, the second issue is, uh, what standard of review should the appeals court have applied, de novo or clear error, in reviewing the district court ruling? Uh, the circuit courts are split on that latter issue. And then the fifth and final case that the court added is Comcast versus National Association of African-American-Owned Media. And the issue is whether a Section 1981 claim of race discrimination fails in the absence of but-for causation. So here, an African-American-owned network sued Comcast after uh, Comcast declined to carry the network's channels, uh, alleging racial discrimination and seeking billions of dollars in damages. Comcast argues the network has to show race was the but-for cause for its decision not to run the network's channels. And then from the denials list, the court 
will not hear the case Kettler v. United States. Uh, This case dealt with gun silencers, uh, men convicted for failing to register devices as required by federal law, asked the court to review the scope of Second Amendment protections for firearms accessories and challenged whether the National Firearms Act is a valid exercise of Congress's taxing power. That act imposes a tax on the making or transfer of firearms defined in the act and also requires registration of firearms. And finally, the court uh, is not going to hear a case brought by an enemy combatant from Yemen who has been detained at Guantanamo Bay for 17 years. Justice Breyer wrote a statement respecting the denial, noting that the court should take up a case in the future addressing whether, in light of the duration and other aspects of the relevant conflict, Congress has authorized and the Constitution permits continued detention. Though Breyer agreed with the court's decision not to review this case, he wrote that the detainee here, quote, faces the real prospect that he will spend the rest of his life in detention based on his status as an enemy combatant a generation ago, even though today's conflict may differ substantially from the one Congress anticipated when it passed the authorization for the use of military force. Next up, I recently sat down with Ed Whalen and Chris Scalia to talk about their new book. Chris Scalia and Ed Whalen are the editors of a book called On Faith, Lessons from an American Believer, which is a compilation of Justice Antonin Scalia's speeches on faith and the role of religion in public life. Gentlemen, welcome to SCOTUS 101. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So this book is a follow-up to Scalia Speaks, an earlier compilation of the justices' speeches on law, faith, and life well-lived. Why did you decide to do a second book? Well, we thought it would be a good idea to have a volume that focused only on uh, what he had to say about faith and religion and public life, as you said, because uh, those were topics that were especially important to him. And in in fact, he had um, started basically drafting a collection of speeches a lot like this one. Um, Greg Grimsel, who's an attorney in Louisiana, uh, writes a reflection in this book about uh, how my father gave him a draft of this collection to read over and kind of give feedback to. And uh, Greg sent his notes back to my father the day before my father passed away. So really in the last year of his life, this was something my, my dad had his mind on. And we wanted to see that through. We want to see that vision through. Uh, second to the law, my father spoke about uh, his faith um, and religion in American life uh, more than any any topic. So we gathered those uh, most of the speeches he wanted to include in the collection, and we included excerpts from opinions and, and as I mentioned, reflections from uh, family members. Uh, Justice Thomas writes the foreword. My brother writes an introduction. My sister has a little essay in there. And then uh, former clerks and, and colleagues. So what's your favorite speech in the collection? Well, I think uh, my favorite item in the collection isn't a speech, but is rather uh, an opinion to which I'm partial. Uh, that's uh, the excerpt from Lee versus Weissman, uh, Justice Scalia's dissent in 1992. That's a case in which the majority ruled that concededly uh, nonsectarian benedictions and invocations at a, uh, at a public school graduation ceremony violated the Establishment Clause uh, because there was a public pressure as well as peer pressure on attending students to stand as a group or at least maintain respectful silence. I think uh, Justice Scalia's dissent is devastating, also quite fun to read. <laughs> uh, I have a, a, a personal fondness for this opinion. Justice Scalia 
allowed his law clerks to acknowledge their role in one case uh, each term, and Lee versus Weissman uh, was the case that uh, I had the pleasure of working on when I clerked for the justice. That's wonderful. Chris, what about you? What's your favorite? I really like absolute standards of conduct, lessons from the Holocaust. This is a speech he delivered on uh, Holocaust Remembrance Day while he was on the Supreme Court. And uh, it's, I think, a moving reflection on the Holocaust, and I I think a pretty uh, original one as well. It looks at, um, well, the, the lesson my father emphasizes is that Germany at the time of the Holocaust was a remarkably sophisticated and well-educated nation, but they were nonetheless capable of that great evil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the lesson my father draws is that no matter how uh, sophisticated we think we are, if we essentially lose fo- perspective and, and lose sight of, he points to specifically the Ten Commandments, then then we are always capable of, of falling into that evil. And I think it's an important reminder. And I also just, I, I think it's really it was a great honor for him, I think, to have been invited to speak at that event as well, and he recognized it as such. One of my favorites is the very first one mm-hmm. in the book, Not to the Wise, the Christian as Cretan. And I believe this is a speech he gave many times over the years. It addresses how intelligent Christians can exercise their faith in an increasingly skeptical world. Uh, there's a passage where Justice Scalia offers his thoughts on the uh, Thomas Jefferson Jefferson Bible and how it eliminated Jesus's resurrection. So here's what the justice says. As I told you earlier, the wise do not believe in resurrection of the dead. It is really quite absurd. So everything from Easter morning to the ascension had to have been made up by those groveling authors, those rogues Jefferson referred to, presumably part of their clever plan to get themselves crucified. So his point is, you know, he continues, is not that reason and intellect must be laid aside where matters of religion are concerned, but rather that the worldly wise will not have... Uh, anything to do with miracles and will not even investigate such silliness. So could one of you talk a little bit about this dichotomy of Justice Scalia? On the one hand, he, you know, he was this titan of the law and of, uh, you know, intellectual circles, but also an unabashed fool for Christ. Sure. Well, I think uh, Justice Scalia was a deep admirer of uh, St. Thomas More, uh, whose um, life and death he discusses uh, in this speech. And I think the justice recognized Uh, that there are so many folks who have a faith commitment to secularism. That's one of the points he makes here, who who, uh, as as a matter of of ideology completely reject um, the possibility of uh, the existence of God. Uh, He obviously was was a man of faith himself and and thought it important to reconcile faith and reason, to recognize uh, the, the realms in which they operated. And I think he uh, hoped to uh, inspire his audience with his speech. He also recognized that this uh, country was very much founded on the Judeo-Christian moral tradition. He so admired uh, George Washington, and you know he, he, he quotes in one of the speeches here, uh, George Washington's farewell address, where Washington says, among other things, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of men and citizens. And continuing a little further down, let us with caution, Washington said, indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. 
Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. I think that the justice very much agreed with uh, mm-hmm. those those thoughts of, of Washington. And that was one of that's a concern that comes up again and again in this speech, uh, these speeches and opinions that the Supreme Court was deviating from that belief and, and making it more and more difficult for Americans to express that public religious belief. Mm-hmm. If it, in you know, in response to your question, if I can quote something my brother, Father Paul Scalia, writes in his introduction. My father made no division between faith and reason. He understood that the act of faith does not mean the end of thought. His library, which I had been plundering for years, reflected this. It was full of authors who combined genuine piety and clear thinking. I remember one Lent speaking with him about Cardinal John Henry Newman's discourse, The Mental Sufferings of Our Lord on his, in His Passion. He loved the way Newman united the exercise of the mind with the devotion of the heart. The two were not opposed, but meant to complement each other. My father expected the same intellectual honesty and clarity from the church's pastors. That's wonderful. So in, uh, in another speech uh, entitled, Away from the Noise, Making Retreats, Justice Scalia talks about one of the biggest disappointments of his life being passed over for Solicitor General of the United States during the early years of the Reagan administration. So here's what he had to say. It was a really bad call on his part referring to the attorney general, and a bitter and unexpected disappointment for me. But had I become SG, I have little doubt that I would have been on the Supreme Court today. So pray for things, but accept what you are given. He knows better than you what is for your own good. So it's just refreshing to hear that even for someone at the very top of his field, there were disappointments along the way. Um, So, Chris, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how your dad handled disappointments. First, let let me fill in... uh Part of the excerpt you left out, I don't want people to get the wrong impression about what my father thought of Rex Lee. Uh, <laughs> a really bad call on his part, I thought uh, at the time. So I think my father uh, came, came to appreciate that in, in case uh, Mike Lee's listening to this. Um, my father, I think, uh, you know, the, the point of that lesson uh, is that, you know, uh, to understand, you know, that as he puts it at the end of that passage, pray for things, but accept what you are given. He knows better than you what is good for your own good or sorry, what is for your own good. And uh, I think, first, as far as that story goes, that was an important lesson from him. And um, when my brother lost, uh, this is another brother, not not Father Paul, <laughs> lost um, a high school election, my, bro- my father told that story to him to comfort him and as a way of saying, you know, this, this is a real disappointment, I understand, but I was in a similar situation and maybe some real good can come of this. And, uh, and my, my brother remembered that, actually, the day of my father's funeral. He, he shared that story with me. And so that, that was an important lesson for him. And I, I think, you know, disappointments, obviously, he wrote a lot of dissents during his time <laughs> on the Supreme Court. So he understood disappointment. But I think that he, um, he, ca- he was able to keep perspective and maintain the long view. Mm-hmm. And I think that that that's really reflected in how he influenced the court for as many dissents as he wrote he kept writing clearly making his point about the proper way to approach the constitution and that that's really how he influenced and changed the direction of the supreme court mm-hmm. in on faith and work how belief affects vocation justice scalia remarks that just as there is no catholic way to cook a hamburger there is no catholic way essentially to be a judge um, Ed, I was wondering if you could talk about this a little bit, because 
outsiders often believed that Justice Scalia's faith led to how he approached certain types of cases, uh, such as those involving abortion and other social issues. Yes, it's a very strange charge that some people make when you see that on all of these hot-button issues, the justice's bottom line position, I'm speaking now of abortion or the death penalty or, or marriage, was that the Constitution leaves these matters to the democratic processes for decision. Not that the Constitution entrenched Justice Scalia's putative views, um, but, of course, beyond that, the justice's point that he spells out here is that uh, his understanding of the judicial role is that judging is a craft um, that that requires that one set aside one's policy preferences, one's religious beliefs, uh, and uh, do one's best to discern the meaning of a legal, a legal text and apply it neutrally. Uh, and so that's that's what he aimed to do. Uh, and you know that's what the originalist uh, jurisprudence that he advocated uh, aimed to do, to discipline judges, not to invite them to in- indulge their policy preferences as the alternative, the so-called living constitution uh, does. Uh, so one final speech I want to discuss for a minute. It's uh, on politics and the public good, the false allure of socialism, which I think is quite timely today. In this speech, Justice Scalia examined what form of government best suits Christians. And here's what he had to say. The allure of socialism for the Christian is that it means well. It is or appears to be altruistic. It promises assistance from the state for the poor and public provision of all the necessities of life. Capitalism, on the other hand, promises nothing from the state except the opportunity to succeed or fail. How uninspiring. And then he goes on to say that the governmentalization of charity— What was once asked as a favor is now demanded as an entitlement that this transformation has produced both donors without love and recipients without gratitude. So what do you think the justice would have to say about uh, socialism's swift rise in popularity in the last few years? Well, I think he would see it as a failure of our education system, uh, a failure to um, teach elementary history, the idea that socialism, uh, you know, 30 years after the the collapse of the Berlin Wall, is somehow somehow popular, even at the very time we see the incredible suffering in Venezuela, is astounding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, look in these speeches, he calls um, for, uh, and, and in his obviously in his um, legal opinions, he draws on the resources from the founding. And I think he wished very much that our um, uh, educational system did a much better job of uh, training our young uh, to be Americans. He understood um, that kids come into the world as little barbarians. They need to be <laughs> civilized. And if you don't civilize them, uh, uh, you know, who knows what you'll end up with. And uh, he did a great job of civilizing kids, just nine of them. Um, <laughs> but it, I may be a little bit biased there. I, I also think this is this comes through clearly in that speech is that I, I think he would be frustrated, especially with uh, Christians who saw socialism as you know the a superior form of government because it it uh, made Christian belief. It was a better manifestation of of Christian belief. And my one thing my father points out in that speech is that. Uh, you look at countries where socialism is strongest and the, the pews aren't exactly packed. Mm-hmm. Um, socialism doesn't seem to ever really get much footing um, while religion stays strong. And and he points out that actually the, the, the nation that has stayed uh, the most Christian um, 
where, where churches are fullest is the United States, which not coincidentally, my father would say, is also happens to be very strongly capitalistic. So you've given us Scalia Speaks and On Faith. What's next? Well, there is a third volume in the works. Uh, I'm uh, actually working with a different co-editor this time, a distinguished federal appellate judge, uh, on a collection of Justice Scalia's uh, legal writings, um, uh, opinions, uh, articles, uh, speeches. Um, I think we hope to have it out by the end of the year, but we're still in the middle of the process, so we will see. Wonderful. Well, thank you both for joining me. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you very much. If you didn't get enough of Ed and Chris, you can watch a public event on the book hosted by yours truly at the Heritage Foundation. I'll share the link to that video on Twitter. And finally, we'll wrap up with a round of supreme trivia. I'm going to try to stump my co-host, Jason. Are you ready? All right, let's do it. Okay, first question. How many Supreme Court justices were born outside of the United States? And if you can give me a ballpark, one to five, five to 10, 10 to 20, I'll consider that good enough. Hmm. Well, point of clarification, uh, the first justices who were born before the United States existed, are we counting them? The ones that were not born in the colonies. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, can you tell I work with lawyers? Um, yeah. I, uh, I think I'm going to say five to ten. You're correct. It's six. And they include David Brewer, who was born in the Ottoman Empire in 1837. Felix Frankfurter uh, was born in Austria. And um, James Wilson was born in Scotland. James Iredell was born in England. William Patterson was born in Northern Ireland. And George Sutherland was born in England. So you're off to a great start, Jason. <laughs> okay, next question. What 1997 Steven Spielberg film did Justice Harry Blackman appear in? The actual justice. The actual justice. I'm trying to think back to Steven Spielberg films from 1997. Can I get a <laughs> hint? <laughs> and he played another justice. Hmm. If that helps. Well, I'm, I, I'm still. And it involves the slave trade. If that helps even more. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm stumped on this one. What ni 1997 movie is this? And it involves a boat. Does that help? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was um, Amistad, and uh, oh. Justice Blackman portrayed Joseph Story. And uh, he is, as far as I know, he is the only Supreme Court justice to have played a judge in a motion picture. You know, I was actually going to guess that because that film has popped up in my Netflix queue a couple of times, but... I haven't watched it yet. Well, now you've got to watch it and um, and keep your eyes peeled for Justice Blackman. I will. All right, third question. Which great justice was briefly featured on the $500 bill? Hmm. Which great justice? Well, it's not going to be the first justice, I assume, right? No. And, okay, I'll give you a little bit of a hint. He is known as the great chief justice. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, well, that I think is going to, uh, I'm blanking on his name here real quick, but, uh, you know, this always happens to me. I, I blank on it, but John Marshall, <laughs> that's it, right? 
John Marshall. That's correct. <laughs> John Marshall was on the bill in 1918, uh, but he was replaced by President William McKinley, uh, who was on the bill until uh, it was discontinued in 1969. Okay. So he, he briefly had a moment in the sun on the $500 bill. <laughs> okay, fourth and final question. All right. Who holds the record for being the oldest justice to ever live? Not just on the court, but oldest in in life. The oldest, the oldest living justice. Uh, well, I read an article that Justice Stevens is ninety nine. Would he be the oldest justice? That is correct. Okay. Uh, justice Stevens recently celebrated his uh, his ninety ninth birthday back in April, and uh, along with Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Stevens was the oldest at retirement as well. They both left the court at age 90. Okay. Yeah. So, long, long tenure. Well, we, we should well, all be I so lucky. You, you know, you did uh, you did pretty good. You got two out of two, and you're going to go and, and, and watch Amistad now, right? <laughs> I absolutely am. <laughs> oh, wait, no, you got three. You got three right, because you got the, uh, the foreign-born justices as well. Yeah. So, man, you're... Definitely improving on your score from last time. <laughs> Not bad for being jet lagged. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jason, thank you so much for joining me. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please leave us a five-star rating. Please follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. You can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. And don't forget to check out our SCOTUS 101 mug at shop.heritage.org. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org. What the heck is trickle-down economics? Does the military really need a space force? What is the meaning of American exceptionalism? I'm Michelle Cordero. I'm Tim Desher, and every week on the Heritage Explains podcast, we break down a hot-button policy issue in the news at a 101 level. Through an entertaining mix of personal stories, media clips, music, and interviews, we help you actually understand the issues. So do this. Subscribe to Heritage Explains on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts today.